Hello, and welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Sophie Ellis Beckstep. Sophie's a singer-songwriter who's had a hugely successful international pop career, famously collaborating with DJ Spiller on Groovejet, If This Ain't Love, which topped the charts in the UK, Ireland, Australia, and New Zealand. Other hits, including Murder on the Dance Floor and Take Me Home, have cemented her position as pop royalty. During lockdown, Sophie hosted a series of regular kitchen discos on Instagram Live, featuring cameos from her five young sons and husband, Richard. Sophie Ellis-Bexter, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. Hey there, Jason. Can I start, Sophie, by asking you to tell us about the significant bereavement you've experienced in your life? Well, I guess for me, that would be my stepdad, John. He died last July. It wasn't a a big surprise. He'd been um, diagnosed with lung cancer two years before that. But uh, yeah, it's kind of coloured, I'd say, the last year in whatever shade grief is. (laughs) Mm. Can we go back to when your stepdad, John, was first diagnosed? Can you tell us about how you heard about it? What kind of conversations you were having as a family? Yeah, so John had had um, throat cancer before and then had had the all clear. He just received um, radiotherapy for that and it seemed to be relatively tidy to get that get the other side of that cancer so he and my mum had been back to their normal pace of life and preparing themselves to go away and all other manner of adventures that they normally do and as it got to Christmas time John had gone for one of his routine checkups and he had been feeling a little bit of I don't know something in his on one side of his his lungs but I don't think he thought it was I think he was hoping it wasn't hugely significant but the scan revealed you know what was really going on So my mum called me and she said that um, John had stage four lung cancer and it was secondary cancer. And so I did a bit of Googling and I realised pretty quickly what what kind of a picture I was looking at. Um, And I think it was just sort of disbelief, really. We're a very open family and very communicative and spend a lot of time together. My mum only lives 10 minutes away from where I live. So, you know, I see a lot of her. Um, And throughout John's treatment, we spent a lot of time together and it was quite sort of matter of fact, I guess. You know, I didn't feel too squeamish about asking him how he's doing and what was happening with treatment and all that side of things. But uh, yeah, it's, well, I'm sure anyone who's been through similar experience knows it's just very hard to get your head around. How about with your own family? I know you've got children of your own. Were you having open conversations with them as well at the time? Yeah, I was actually. Um, 
I'm trying to think of the chronology of events now. I'm pretty sure I would have been pregnant when John was diagnosed. I've got five kids, so I'm usually pregnant somewhere around any big life event. <laughs> but, um, but let's imagine my youngest, Mickey, throughout the treatment, he was very, very small. He's only two now, all the way up to my eldest, Sonny, who's now 17. And yes, I think because when I was a kid, I felt like um, death and conversations around that and severe illness were maybe not spoken to me in a way that always made sense to me. So it was very important to me that my children, you know, they could ask me pretty open questions. I'd answer them with as much truth as I thought was appropriate. Um, or rather, I'd always put truth in there, but always make it, you know, in, in the sort of level that would make sense to them and not not scare them too much, but just, I suppose, gently prepare themselves for the fact that, you know, I knew what the end of the story would be. And I wanted them to kind of be aware of that too, so that they could make sense of their time with grandpa and grandma within that context, that it wasn't something that would last forever. And I think that's one of the things people struggle with, certainly in my experience in, in my work, um, you know, when there are young children um, and for parents, whether it's a parent or a grandparent or friend, neighbor, whoever's living with a terminal illness, um, is how do you tell them? You know, how do you begin those conversations and what do you tell them? And I think what you've just said, certainly something we would recommend as well is to allow them to ask the questions and go at their pace and also kind of pitch it at an understandable level, you know, not, not give too much information as well, not use any sort of complicated information. So I think it's interesting what you were just saying there about when you were younger, those sort of messages around death might not have necessarily made much sense. No, but I think, um, I think there are a couple of lessons I learned. My grandma, so my maternal um, grandma, she died when I was 11. And firstly, I did not understand how ill she was. And that really haunted me, I think. I just didn't understand it. I don't think anyone had said, you know, she's incredibly ill and one day this will probably most likely be how she dies. And it probably won't be that far away. So actually the night that I last saw her, I'd gone around after school uh, with my mum and I was complaining about having a tummy ache and on the way home my mum said to me you know you probably shouldn't really complain too much when you have a tummy ache because actually grandma's a lot sicker than you and and then actually she died that night and obviously the memory is the funny thing it's incredibly possible it wasn't that night but in my head that's that's when it was and then after that I didn't I didn't really cry very much and I remember feeling like I'd got that bit wrong and that I was supposed to have been manifesting a lot more outward sadness than I was. So actually with, with John, I said the same thing to the kids. I said, you know, if you feel sad, that's okay. And if you don't, that's okay as well. Because I think for me, it was really important that they didn't worry about their reactions to it. They could let the feelings come and go. And if it was a big deal to them, that was okay. And if it wasn't, that was completely okay too. And I think I've seen it now firsthand. Most of my kids did not get overly emotionally sad when we spoke about it. So I now realize that my own response back then probably wasn't that unusual, but I felt very self-conscious about it. And I wanted to make sure they were totally alleviated of that. We know as well for young people, you know, and as you've just described, they you know, may feel sad for a moment or for, you know, 10 minutes, but then there's something else, you know, and those emotions kind of go, can go up and down, can't they? Actually can be like that for adults as well. 
definitely definitely so john was living two years with his illness with his cancer and um and just moving forward to when he started to become a lot less well and that he started to die was there um had he spoken about what his wishes were for his end of life do you know he hadn't actually no um so i suppose this is the three parts of that really up until the first lockdown actually he and my mum were still pretty pretty active they went on a big trip to japan they managed to buy a very lovely little place in um a little italian town called modica in sicily so they were kind of admirably just sort of getting on with stuff and honestly if you saw the place they bought you wouldn't say that one of the people buying that little place had lung cancer it's up about 60 or 70 steps to get wow. to this little, <laughs> little, uh, little place they have um, and I, I loved all that. It was really them. It was really them that they were still living life in whatever capacity they could. So actually, when John first got really sick, it was actually sort of all cloaked with, um, with lockdown, really. Um, and so suddenly he couldn't go anywhere anyway. So the fact that actually, in reality, he was probably struggling to get to the end of the garden to sit in the sunshine and have his tea. I don't think I don't think the significance of it was really apparent to all of us um but then by the time he did get really ill um we were actually able to go and be with him in hospital that kind of thing I think probably the last six weeks it was all quite like we could see what was happening but then actually the day that he died we found um there was a letter that he'd written and that had all of his wishes and actually it was an amazing gift that letter because the tone of it was completely him and it was probably the most I don't know, transparently emotional thing he'd ever done. He wasn't, he wasn't really like a very um, romantic sort of demonstrative man in that way. Um, so this letter was really lovely because it kind of gave us a bit of a, um, a bit of a shape to how he would help us through that first bit of grief in a way. Um, and I, I really appreciated it. I, I took a lot of comfort from that. So he'd not really... He'd, he'd not, as far as you know, he'd not really had conversations about his end of life wishes and what he what he wanted. The reason the reason I'm asking that is we, um, you know, we 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 encourage people as a charity. You know, we encourage people to have those conversations about death and dying because we know even on a practical level, that kind of planning for the future can can make the experience can support the experience when it comes for those who are affected by it. Yeah. So I guess, and so far as to answer your question, I think. I think, you know, that there were definitely conversations that I was party to where I was talking about aspects of palliative care and whether we'd like to be at home or in hospital and those kind of things. But in terms of, um, I'm also the practical thing in terms of like funeral plans and all this, I, I, I don't think, I didn't get the impression that he and my mum had spoken about that a lot. And she told me subsequently that sometimes she'd try and ask questions about afterwards and he would just say oh, we're, not, we're not talking about that now but I think he was a practical man so I think his paperwork had been very in order he'd been quite very good about looking out for the, you know, the financial side of how things would work out for my mum so yeah there was definitely a lot of those things but it just wasn't something that I was really I wasn't having a lot of the conversations with him directly myself yeah yeah and can you tell us about his death at the end yeah, it was um, it was an extraordinary time, really, um, because uh, when I first when we first realised, you know, that we that was where we were at, um, 
in normal circumstances at that time of year, it'd be quite likely that probably my brother, he's a drummer, I'm a singer, my husband's a bass player. We'd probably have been away quite a lot of that time. It was all sort of beginning of the summer, so July kind of time. And often we'd be away for a lot of work. And I think because everything had been shut down, we could all be together. And I really appreciate that, that we had that time. So on the day before he actually died, we were all together all day, um, playing music, talking, sometimes laughing, a lot of crying, obviously. And it was just, I think, you know, families go through all sorts of things, but I think whatever dynamic you have there at the root and however you interact with each other and all that love and support that is there effortlessly through the good days, it really comes into amazing play when you're going through something tough and it becomes this sort of structure that's just quietly there. So none of us were, there was no tension. I didn't feel like there was anything that needed to be said. There was nothing I needed to hear. We could just be. And I, I'm sure for a lot of families, there's all sorts of stuff that gets churned up when you're in that sort of situation. And I'm just so grateful that that wasn't our experience of it. Um, we could just be sad or reminisce or whatever came naturally without any sort of question mark over anything else we should be sorting or someone else annoying us or anything. So yeah, there's lots of music I could listen to now that would take me straight back to that moment. Um, and I actually got some, I asked the kids if they wanted to FaceTime their grandpa and I explained to them that, you know, this would be a chance to say goodbye if they wanted to. And uh, some of them wanted to, some of them didn't, and that was fine. And the two that did, I was really impressed with them actually, because they were very good at articulating stuff. And one, I think my youngest one, Ray, he was eight. And so I put, I, put, I said, look, grandpa is gonna look a bit strange because he's asleep, but he can hear you. And, and then Ray was, you know, I, I'm sorry to hear you might die grandpa and I love you. And I was just really proud of him because I thought he did it in quite an unflinching way with a lot of clarity. And I think, you know, you can't, you don't get any training for that kind of stuff. And my mum was extraordinary. And the next day she phoned us very, very early to say that John had died. I think it was around six in the morning. Um, and so me, my brother and sister and my mum, so Jack, Martha and I all went, we had about an hour with John. Um, and it was sometimes quite mundane, you know, working out which bits and bobs from his little hospital side table we should take home and we just keep the half used toothpaste and that kind of thing. And then some of it, very sad of course and then some of it really really quite profound and I don't think my mum would mind me sharing that but there was a part where as we were leaving my mum just put her hands on either side of John on his shoulders and just sort of said thank you to his body for carrying him and it was it was very beautiful and very sad yeah I, I felt so much that um so much of my emotion about John and my sense of family at the heart of it all really is the love story of my mum and and John. And that was kind of the the stone from which all the concentric circles came out of really. And I felt that it was extraordinary privilege to sort of see the end the end of that journey as it is at the moment. So yeah, it was a really incredible thing to witness, really. I love that when you be talking about that kind of structure. And I was thinking about, um, you know, that, that, that 
essentially was the, the sort of love in the room. Um, but and I was thinking about this foundation, actually, the kind of foundations it was sitting on. And um, but, but, but I was also um, I was also thinking about it sounded like there was an acceptance as well of what was happening, an acceptance that John was dying. And I wonder, I just wonder what difference that makes in that room at that time for everybody who's there if there's some acceptance of what's going on you know whether that's your eight-year-old accepting it as well and talking about it and all of you I don't know that I don't know that uh, well I do know that not everybody has that experience and I think the acceptance that it's coming or that it's real and that death's going to happen um, it's a tough one, you know, it's a, it's a really tricky one, isn't it? Of course you don't want it, um, but you're experiencing it. Yeah, and I think, you know, that there was, I wouldn't say I would apply the word acceptance to my initial reaction when I found out about the diagnosis. Um, I felt really quite angry about it, actually. And, you know, you walk along a street and see all manner of people who look way more senior than John and you think why why doesn't he get that extra decade two decades three decades um but ultimately things just happen to people and you know who's to say it, it couldn't have been much shorter than that um yeah I suppose I suppose there was acceptance and I'm and with my kids as well I was really I just really wanted them to know that when they look back on it all, that they understood what was happening. I'd hate them to think that they didn't really get it and they didn't have the opportunity to do to do what made it right for them. So yeah, I did say, you know, like there was one time just before John went into hospital, I said, you know, we're gonna go around and it, it's probably the last time that you're going to see him in, in person. So um, they all went in one by one and had a little bit of time with grandpa and then ditto that last day in the hospital as well. Um, I don't want them to have any regrets about it. It's a really um, unhelpful emotion. So I was keen to support that as much as possible. Um, yeah, I don't know, it's just, a, it's just a weird thing to go through really. You know it's gonna happen, but I have to say the diagnosis doesn't make a massive difference to what, how it grief feels on the other side because you don't, I don't think you can ever put yourself there and you feel like you might be jinxing things to even imagine it before you know it's time anyway, which I know is nonsensical, but. It's just that feeling of, you know, so I remember just before John, uh, you know, maybe in the last week or something, and we'd all started having conversations about, okay, I think, you know, we're in the last bit now. And then you suddenly get a WhatsApp message from John and you're thinking, oh God, you know, I'm already thinking about that. And they're here and it just felt really wrong. So you sort of put all that side of everything on pause in your head and then find yourself just going through it in a slightly zombie-like fashion when you're on the other side, I think. Talking about the other side, um, can you tell us about John's funeral? So at the time of the funeral, legally, I think 16 people were allowed. And we felt actually that not being able to have a big funeral gave us the opportunity to have one that was incredibly small and actually felt really nice because John is a was a very loved person, lots of friends. Uh, lots of people who would like to pay tribute to him, but we just had that for ourselves. And actually, I quite liked that. So the funeral was just uh, my mum, my brother and his girlfriend, my sister and her boyfriend, me and my husband, Richard, five kids. 
that was it really and we just sat in this little chapel and we didn't want a great deal of formality and initially there was talk about us all reading out a reading or reading a letter to John whatever we wanted to and then in the end even that didn't feel like we needed to do that really I mean who were we performing to is only the people in the room we'd had all those conversations with each other anyway so we all wrote letters or the kids did drawings or wrote whatever they wanted to and then played 45 minutes of music and whenever we felt like it one of us would just go up and put our whatever we'd written onto the coffin so by the end they were all it's all piled high with all the little bits of paper and drawings and things and Ray was dressed he was the eight-year-old he was dressed as a cowboy <laughs> and you know it's probably quite distressing for the kids to see everybody sad but at the same time I'd sort of warn them about that and then the little ones all went home and then uh all of the you know the, all the adults and my eldest we all went for a nice lunch by the river uh, which we were able to do at the time and it was a really beautiful hot sunny day so we sort of walked there and yeah it was peaceful it was very peaceful the whole day was pretty pretty peaceful i just like that kind of having something to do as well on the funeral you know especially thinking about the children but actually writing letters or um you know and getting up off your seat and walking to the front and putting something on top of the coffin just making it making everybody involved and and yeah i think that's i mean certainly for young people and and adults um i i guess that's probably just makes it a kind of nicer experience rather than the potential formality of something where you know you might not be allowed to move or <laughs> you know you might just have think you have to stay silent yeah that wouldn't have felt right um yeah and you know, I was thinking about it as we were talking it's you know I feel very lucky really because I've you know John was at my wedding he's met all my children but for my brother and sister they haven't got to that bit yet so it's I suppose, um, yeah, I felt like I was in quite a sort of protective role, really. I feel like they're, they've got all those life experiences to come and it'll be very significant that John won't be there for it. Um, he was only 63 when he died, which obviously still seems pretty senior to my children, I'm sure, but it, it's not really. And I think there's, there's something in that you know, which, which we do talk about on this podcast, but also talk about with the um, individuals and families we meet through our work, is that everybody's experience of it will be different because your relationship with the individual was different. So everyone's experience of grief is unique, you know, because it's kind of based on you, you, as you as a stepdaughter and the relationship you had with your stepdad. Um, you know, that, that's going to inform your experience of bereavement and grief isn't it yeah that's very true um and I suppose you know uh, the step parent thing is an interesting one because obviously I mean like any family dynamic to some people that's they can imagine what John would have meant to me you know but, but, but to other people they might think okay not your real dad but the nice thing is I never needed to explain or articulate any of that stuff to the people that were in the room when we were at the funeral or to John or any of that stuff. It just, it just was. And I don't, yeah, it was nice not to have any question marks about, about the strength of my feelings, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course it does. Do you, do you feel that that exists? Is that, is that a thing? I, had it, I suppose I only really had one comment from a friend and it was, was not an, un, you know, it was well-meaning, but she said, you know, oh, your poor brother and sister, you know, and, I know you've lost a stepdad, but that's their dad. And it just really 
stayed with me a little bit. And I think, you know, if you're a child that then becomes part of two new families, so I have a step parent on both sides, there's always a slight feeling that people might think that you're slightly the one, the one slightly on the outside of that. And it's never, it doesn't come from inside the family walls. It's just a sort of, I don't know. Yeah, just a, a feeling you sometimes get. But um, but yes, you're right. And if we had read letters out loud, then that actually was actually what I was planning on talking about and saying, you know, I, I met John when I was seven and we we had to learn our relationship together. And actually that became the real beauty of what emerged from it actually is that we had something that was just our own and we we learned it ourselves <laughs> how was that how was that learning period when you came into your life at seven and you first met oh qu- quite funny <laughs> um <laughs> so when I met John I wasn't sure about him at all he was um he was from Huddersfield and quite unfamiliar with small people I don't think he'd ever met a child really <laughs> I don't think he'd certainly not spent that much time with any small people and he had a very northern dry humor so for our first Christmas which I think was only a few months in he gave me a packet of balloons that said happy birthday Jane which I really didn't get at all and I said to my mum afterwards I don't like John well actually I didn't say it I wrote it down because I felt like I needed to tell her and looking back my mum must have already been pregnant with my brother because she got pregnant with him when they'd only been out for three months and she handled it really well. She laughed a little bit, but then she was, said, Look, I trust me on this one. I think he's a good person. And actually we never had any wobbles after that. It was all fine. And Jack was born when I was eight. And from thereafter, really, mum, John, Jack, that was family and a really happy home. And I did obviously still go and see my dad and my stepmom, but John very, very smartly. And I give this advice to anybody that's stepping into the role of step parent. He never, ever got involved in any of the dynamics between my mum and my dad. He never said an unkind word about my dad, never slagged him off. And it's just definitely the way forward. It pays back dividends, I promise. The coronavirus pandemic has triggered a wave of bereavement across the country and taken away our ability to be with loved ones and grieve in traditional ways. Marie Curie's new memory cloud is an online space to reflect on a loved one's life and share special memories with your friends and family. Visit memorycloud.org.uk I know it hasn't been very long since John died. Can you tell us about your experience of grief and what's helped you or is helping you? Um, so I suppose, uh, what have I learned? I mean, I feel... That first feeling of grief was just, it's like a blur when I look back. I feel, I felt like I was wearing a cloak. And in some ways I, I still am. It's just that you don't see it so much these days. But at that time I felt very much like I was almost wearing it like a coat and it was heavy. And some days would really slow me down. And other days it would sort of alleviate for a bit, but then, you know, you'd become, it was like a, a magic coat that could kind of sometimes be transparent and sometimes be very made of something very heavy. Um, but I think the thing I found I struggled with the most is actually probably watching people I love going through it and not being able to really fundamentally help them. And especially for my mum, I was always so worried about this bit and she's been brilliant and kept herself really busy and, she's someone that's 
read billions of books on grief. And so she sort of knew a bit about what you're supposed to be doing with yourself and making plans and walking the dog. And she walks for miles and gets out into nature and all of that. But it's been very tough to know that she goes home to an empty house. And I couldn't, I couldn't change it. I couldn't make it so that John was here again. And she writes about grief. She's very good at articulating herself. So she'll either tell me and my brother and sister or she sometimes writes these Instagram posts that totally floor me. They're beautiful, but they're heartbreaking. And um, yeah, I just I think she'll make it into something bigger one day. She's been writing a bit of poetry. And I think she could well write a book that involves her talking about all that. Um, so she has got the language and that helps. But um, yeah, I just can't, I can't, I can't undo what's happened. And you're all finding your way through. Exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, she she did say that she wants to be her sort of best version of herself in, you know, in tribute to John, really. And I think that's really lovely. I think it's a nice idea that you can you can use, you can harness the love that came from a relationship to sort of fuel you through the next bit. Um, and with every death I've ever experienced, it always makes me think about how really the meaning of life is who you've loved and who's loved you, because I feel like it sort of continues and gets passed on like a baton. So, yeah, I think I can see that in action. But yes, you're right. It's still pretty recent. Is there anything in your experience in, of, of grief that you've, you've found helpful that you could tell others? Um, I suppose keeping conversations open, talking about it whenever you want to. I think it's helped me sort of dismantle any remaining awkwardness I might have had about talking about death, really. And I want to be really good at that for other people. I want to make sure I'm a good friend when people are going through things. Um, so, yeah, I think just a lot of a lot of it is just turning on your back and floating but that is okay and there are people around to help you um so just yeah keep the conversation open I think I think that's probably the most the main thing and, and just give yourself permission that chronology really can go out the window it doesn't really really work like that and I've had to talk to my kids about that too one of them in particular has has definitely taken an impact from it and you know, I've taken him to see a counsellor because he, I think it, it just really shocked him, this idea that someone can just be removed from, from your life. Um, I suppose just being open to letting all the feelings come. I definitely find going for walks and keeping things quite simple has really helped me. Just, I found at the beginning, there was nowhere I could go to anything social or see lots of people. And I think that's all fine. No pressure. It's a big deal. <laughs> a big deal be kind to yourself i think what will also be helpful which i really liked is that image of the magic cloak um because i liked how you described how it changes mm. and so you know th there are times when it will feel really heavy yeah and then there are times when it feels almost kind of transparent and a bit lighter and it sort of changes sort of color and exactly yeah i think i think those things are really helpful to hear, you know, when you're experiencing it, certainly if you're experiencing it for the first time, because it can sometimes feel like it's never going to change. And, you know, those kind of in the depths of it, um, not easy at all.
No, but it does definitely shift. You're right. It does. It does definitely shift. And, you know, at first you think, oh, I won't be able to bring it up without, you know, being incredibly vulnerable very quickly. But actually now I feel like, you know, I can bring back a sort of slightly more, like more lightness of touch in how I can weave stories about John or memories of John into my everyday life without it always, always coming with the cloak going very heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I realize as well on this podcast, you know, we have people who come and join us on the Marie Curie couch and actually, um, you know, it might, it might not be very often that those individuals, including yourself, end up having a, a long conversation about the experience of somebody's death, no matter kind of when that happened, because, yeah, well, we're sort of busy. And I think, as you say, you might not want to have it all the time and you might kind of dip in and out of it. It's fine. It's, it is a nice thing to talk about too, because it's it's still very recent, and I think you do get a slight sort of post trauma association with the memories of the certainly the final bit. You know, it's so visceral that bit when you're in the hospital and gelling your hands and the people coming in and out and just getting your head around all of it. And uh, yeah, sometimes I can suddenly be right back there, um, and that's that's not very nice. Um, but I've also been writing about it a bit, and I think that helps too for me. Anyway, I've been in, I've been writing a book, and so I wrote a whole chapter on grief. And I think just being able to sort of be peaceful and slightly go through the, the thoughts has been quite nice for me too. Just to um, kind of change tack a bit, I wanted to ask whether um, you think about your own death and whether you've had conversations with your family whether it's you your husband about kind of plans for the future or wishes at the end of life um nothing really structured um i've sort of sometimes said about songs i'd quite like played but they're all songs that i don't think are very funerally like hey mickey by tony basil (laughs) (laughs) which i decided when i was really little I don't think I'd choose it if I was just at the starting point of now, but to honour my small self, I feel like I should still include it. But to be honest, I don't really mind. I, I sort of trust and hope that my loved ones will do what works for them, really. I don't really feel like the funeral's for me. It's for them. So I, I'm, I'm okay with all that. I don't really feel like I need... I mean, my mum's, like, she wants us all to wear black for 10 years and it's all got to be very dramatic. Um I, I, I don't feel like I need to impose that on anyone. It's fine. <laughs> I'm quite relaxed about that aspect of life. <laughs> the bit where I'm not in it. <laughs> and what about practical things like writing a will? I think I did that when I was much younger and I only had one kid and probably hadn't moved houses many times, that kind of thing. So maybe when I was about, I think Richard and I had to do it actually. I think maybe when Sonny was little. So maybe, yeah, about 16 years ago. So we should probably have another look at it. Um, yeah, it, it, I don't have a problem with the idea of it. I'm not particularly squeamish about it. It's just that there's so many other things I'm doing in the here and now, which are a bit more pressing, <laughs> or potentially, potentially more pressing. <laughs> <laughs> if life stays predictable, then more pressing. Absolutely. I think that's a good point, though. I think with, um, you know, certainly for families, um, for those who've not written a will, um, you know, they might not know that they can include in their will um you know, their, their wishes for who's going to kind of care for the family, who's going to care for the children afterwards, and what, what some of those arrangements might be. 
Um, and also people can include just kind of basic, I mean, in my will, you know, I've put in some just sort of basic funeral wishes. The fact that I want cremated and not buried, you know, it's that kind of, and you can include some of those things in there as well. And I think at least they're documented because of course there are endless stories of people in situations when a death happens and there's no will or there's nothing documented or nothing's written down, no conversations have taken place. And that's when, you know, everybody's got an opinion and those opinions might not always match. I think I've said about, yeah, cremated would be preferable too, but um, I suppose I feel like we're all, that's probably just what they'd do anyway, but maybe they wouldn't. Maybe it would turn into an argument. I'll make sure I write it down somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I'll put it in my notes on my computer. It should be one note and just say cremated. (laughs) (laughs) I'll keep it quite vague. (laughs) <laughs> absolutely um you can maybe put it in your book yeah exactly all right i'll just put it in there that's a good idea yeah funeral wishes <laughs> that's just not a bad idea i'll get to it <laughs> so is the book about your sort of own experiences or it's an autobiography so i've been able to write about whatever i want to really um but i think my relationship with grief has probably been quite it's something I was keen to write about because probably of the significance of that time when I was young and my grandma dying and feeling like I got it wrong. Mm-hmm. And it was something that I really, I really carried with me. And I felt like maybe I was a bit cold or a bit heartless because I hadn't got very upset. And I remember about a year after my grandma died, I was reading a book and the end of the book was very sad. And I started crying and my stepmom came in and saw me and she said, oh, you're crying. That's that's good. I, I thought maybe you couldn't. And now looking back, she might have meant you're letting out some of the emotion about your grandma. But I thought she meant that she literally thought she didn't think I was capable of it. And that really startled me. Whereas actually now I realise I probably miss my grandma more now than I did as a child because I now see all the times and all the experiences she would have been party to. So I think I think it was fine that I didn't. I didn't really get it at the time. I think I was probably busy being 11 and going to a new school and had a new sister born and all these other things that were happening around then. I wish I hadn't felt that pressure, actually. And some grown-ups worry about those things, don't they? I think it's like, oh, she's not crying. Yeah. She's bottling it all up. But it's fine. Yeah, of course, of course. It's fine. Well, so you can talk to kids about it. They're actually, I mean, you know, giving them the language of how to talk about their feelings is a a brilliant gift in all directions. So I'm very hot on that, really. But also giving permission to feel what you feel. It's okay. You can't force yourself to feel something you're not feeling anyway. And what you don't want to do is leave a child, like you've described, feeling like they've done something wrong or they haven't got it right. Exactly. Yeah. No, I know. Um, Plus, there's different levels of things. You know, there's when people die in your family at the expected order of things it's a you know grandparents first and you know that's a very different thing to you know a tragedy that might be some you know someone dying at a different time or when they're very young or I think you know it's it's also different there's probably slightly different rooms of grief as well um and I know I I spoke to this woman called Carrie Ad Lloyd you know her she does a podcast called Griefcast and yeah he was, she and I were talking about that and about how, you know, anyone that's experienced loss of a child, that's, that's got its own space, really. That's a very different thing. And I think we've got to be, it's okay to acknowledge that as well. So these are the different rooms 
Yeah, I like that. Yeah, so I think of it in my head anyway. Last two questions. One is, um, you've already sort of touched on these and spoken about them really, but I just wonder if there's anything else. If, you know, thinking about our listeners who, you know, we hear back from people that they find the podcast useful, helpful, supportive when they're either caring for somebody who's dying, who's terminally ill, or when they're grieving themselves. And um, is there any sort of words that helped you through either of those times through either when John was dying or then now throughout your grief if you're in that situation and you're listening in I think you're already giving yourself a a brilliant thing there by just being open to other people's stories and um, remembering that it can feel incredibly isolating and overwhelming but you you are not the first person to experience those things and there are people out there that are willing to listen if you want to speak or they're willing to talk, if you want to listen. So have those conversations or listen into them and things like podcasts or books. I think sometimes even hearing someone or reading someone articulate a feeling that you're struggling to articulate yourself can be immensely helpful. Um, so much of it is about just, just letting that that feeling be not everything needs to be fixed or solved and if something's very sad it's okay just to acknowledge it's really sad um in fact I remember when when John had first died I felt like the the English language is really sometimes so unhelpful (laughs) um you know sad can mean so many things as can love and sometimes just wanting those little nuances that just help you pinpoint what you're going through a little better can be really helpful so probably just yeah look out for yourself in that way and curate for yourself a world that means that you're seeing things reflected back at you that help you in that way so even if you're not lucky enough to have someone at the end of the phone or someone at home that can be that sounding board there are still voices you can hear that can give you that comfort I think and utilize that and I think, yes, just being kind to yourself. We can sometimes feel like there's so many expectations of how to act and what to be keeping up with. But actually, when big things happen in your life, they don't happen over and over again. You know, these significant events are sprinkled throughout a lifetime. So you can really just take time for that big thing to happen and unfold. You know, you can feel like you've got to sort of hurry up to get back to where you were. But actually, how many times do you lose a parent a sibling, someone you love. It's not an everyday thing. So you don't have to behave every day about it, I don't think. What did it mean to you to come on this podcast today, Sophie? I suppose a few things really. It's nice to it's nice to talk about John. It's nice to check in on myself, if I'm honest. I don't often have time just to sit back and think about how I'm really feeling about all those things because life has kind of started to move on. Actually, that's another thing that I think is is worth noting. It's quite hard when you're grieving someone and the first few new things happen afterwards that you normally would have told them about. It can kind of give your grief a little shake again, I think. You think, oh, I would have loved to have shared that with them. And the idea that the world has started to move forward is quite, it's quite a thing. But anyway, I think, yeah, just checking in with that, um, hearing your very calm voice. Do <laughs> 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 thing. Um, and I suppose... I I have got um, an interest in in talking about 
things that don't always come easy. Uh, so I think it's quite healthy to keep having those conversations. Like I said before, it's really important to me that I can be the friend my friends have been to me when they're going through it. And I want to, I want to learn from that, the, the language of it, and also how to just, what kind of things are helpful. Um, I don't really talk about it that much, really, but it's nice to. It is nice. Sophie Ellis-Baxter. Thank you for joining me on the Marie Curie Couch today. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for telling us about John. And uh, I hope you have a great day. You too. Thank you for having me on the couch. And I might stay while I finish my tea. (laughs) So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. The podcast's produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. And the music featured is Time Lapse by Panoceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.